morning and Merry Christmas. I'm so glad to be able to be here with you today here in the Lake Forest Sanctuary, as well as our friends up in the Owan and at Crossroads and at Highland Park. Welcome. So great to be here. As uh, we have said, we are wrapping up this series called And His Name Shall Be Called. And so throughout December, throughout this Advent season, we've been looking at different names or titles of Jesus with a view toward expanding our view of how great a gift Jesus actually is. Unlike so many gifts that wear out with time, Jesus is a gift that continues to surprise and amaze us the more that we get to know him. And so I'm excited to have this final opportunity this weekend as we head into Christmas Eve and Christmas Day uh, to look at one more title or designation of Jesus uh, and to plant yet another seed in our hearts and in our minds as we go into this holiday of the greatness of the gift that is Jesus. And so we're going to look this morning at Jesus, who is called the firstborn. I wonder what comes into your mind when you think of a firstborn. If you are a firstborn, incidentally, how many firstborns do we have here in, in all our venues? Hold them high so people can see who you are. It's not a challenge for a firstborn to raise their hand high and be seen. So if you are a firstborn, you might, you might think of firstborn and think of outstanding leadership qualities or strong independence, your very helpful take-charge nature. Maybe it's the gift of society of always being right. That, that's what you think of when you think of being a firstborn. Or maybe if you're a firstborn in your 40s like I am, you might blame your birth order on things like being stressed out or obsessive compulsive or emotionally challenged. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of firstborn. If you're not a firstborn, you probably have stories to tell about your big brother or your big sister. You might be telling some of those stories in the next few days over a little bit of eggnog and uh, enjoying some family traditions. So it may or may not be good news to hear that Jesus is a firstborn, but he is. And it's a big deal for some reasons that are a little bit different than how we tend to think about firstborn in our culture. Now, uh, in order to set this up, I want you to think about the level of stress that you're feeling right now. Think about the stress that you're carrying in this moment as we head into Christmas. Now, I love Christmas. I'm excited about it. But let's be honest, for a lot of reasons, this can be an extremely stressful season. You might be frantically preparing to get your home ready for guests, family, or friends to come and spend time with you, and you're stressed about those preparations. Or maybe you're scrambling to get things together because you're traveling and you're trying to tie up loose ends and get everything ready so that you can be gone for a few days. Maybe you're stressed about how you're going to pay for everything uh, throughout the Christmas season, and you're looking at that credit card bill coming at the end of the month, and that's already beginning to stress you out. Maybe you're bracing yourself to navigate some challenging relationships over these holiday gatherings with family or friends, and you just know how those patterns unfold over these days, and you're carrying some stress about that even now. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one, or maybe you're just facing this season alone, and it's beginning to stress you out. All of these things come at us in this season, and, and what is a wonderful time of year, no doubt, can also bring a large amount of stress with it. 
Now, those are all sort of grown-up stresses, but kids aren't immune to the stress either. I remember when I was a kid, the one big question I had every year, what am I going to get for Christmas? And, and as a firstborn, sort of stressed out, obsessive-compulsive, that would sort of get into my head, and, and I couldn't take it anymore. And so my strategy was I would get up in the middle of the night of Christmas Eve, and I would sort of creep into the living room and see what Santa had brought, because there was no way I could wait until the morning. Sometimes when I did that, I would hear Santa Claus in the garage, and that would stress me out. But my plan was I would go and wake up my younger sister. She didn't want to be woken up. She didn't like this plan at all. Uh, But she would tell you I dragged her out of bed to come and hold the refrigerator door open so that the light would go into the living room and I could scope out the mother load and see what Santa had brought. And I would tell her, she didn't want to hear it, but I would tell her what she got. And then I felt better and I could go back and sleep for maybe another 30 or 45 minutes, you know, and then we could run down and and do that. So as a firstborn, I had my strategies. I had my stresses, and that's how I dealt with my stress of Christmas. Christmas is great, and the true meaning of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is even more wonderful. But sometimes this Christmas stress that we all feel make it hard for us to receive the true gift of Christmas. And I think that's a bit of a revelation of some of the stress that we feel around Christianity in general. The gift of Jesus, not only at Christmas, but as our Savior, as the one who has made a way for us to have a relationship with God, to have sins forgiven and peace with God, is the most wonderful message in the world. And yet sometimes there are accompanying stresses that cause us to miss the real gift of what it means to know Jesus and to have a relationship with God. Sometimes we struggle to experience the gift that Jesus really is. And so my hope today as we look at this title or designation of Jesus is that it will help us sort of navigate and and sort of melt away some of this religious stress that for many of us accompanies knowing and following Jesus. To do that, we're going to take a look at a short section in the New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Colossae, or the book of Colossians. So we're going to look there in just a few minutes. I've got a little bit of context to frame, but if you've got a Bible, you could go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. Or if uh, you've got a phone or there are some pew Bibles uh, nearby, if you want to grab one of those, we're going to look in just a few minutes at a a short section there in the book of Colossians. But before we get there, just a little bit about uh, the city of Colossae uh, in in the ancient world and and what they were facing. The city of Colossae um, in the the sort of Middle Eastern region there um, was a city that was a mix of cultures and traditions from all around the area, from Babylon and Mesopotamia uh, in the centuries leading up to this city. There was sort of a, a melting pot there in this city. And by the time that Paul is writing this letter to new Christians that lived in Colossae, this city had seen better days. By the time of the writing of this letter, other cities like Laodicea and, and other municipalities had taken on more significance, more influence than Colossae. The economy of Colossae wasn't what it had been. And so you can read between the lines of the situation there in Colossae. This was sort of a stressed out city. Um, it was a city looking for a new 
way forward. And you can imagine in sort of a stressful economic time, the different voices saying, this should be our path forward. These are the traditions we should follow. This is what should characterize our city. And the church in that city wasn't immune to it either. Uh, Here you have a, a new group of people who have believed the message of some missionaries that came to their town, missionaries who were working with the Apostle Paul with the message of a Messiah. And they had believed this message. They had taken a step of faith. They had begun to live differently. But at the same time, they were hearing voices from their culture and society and various traditions from sort of secular traditions in the world telling them how to make the most of this newfound spirituality or how to integrate this new faith into other religious systems. And so it created this environment when you read between the lines of the book of Colossians and the way that Paul speaks to these new believers, you get this feeling of a religious stress, that they had a faith. They were learning, they were growing, they were open, they were teachable, but they were stressed in this posture of religion. And scholars who make a lifetime of study and over the centuries of the book of Colossians agree that there was what's called a Colossian heresy, sort of a group of teaching uh, that was infecting the church there in Colossians and, and taking the simple faith in Jesus and adding to it a whole list of things uh, that were sort of distorting the message of Jesus Christ. These are unfolded largely in chapter 2, and we're just going to take a a brief survey of some of these things, drawing them out of chapter 2, and then we're going to go back to chapter 1 and spend some time looking at how Paul deals with this. So in in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this to these new believers. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. And then he goes on, and we don't have time to read all of it, but through most of the rest of chapter 2, he names numerous different elements of this religious philosophy that was seeking to pull these new believers their way. The first thing, and we saw it right in the verse, is that it was, in fact, a philosophy. It it was a, a, a system of religious thought that sort of made sense in some way to the human mind. That's, that was how he characterized it. He called it, was, he called it hollow and deceptive. And, and I'll just name some of the things that show up in the following verses. You can read them in your own time. But they claimed that it was tradition. So they were reaching back and saying, this isn't just our philosophy. This is the tradition that has been handed down. And so legitimizing this philosophy with the label of tradition was one of the strategies. It involved submission to what's called the elemental spiritual forces of this world. In other places, Paul calls them principalities or powers or rulers. And it's a reference to spiritual forces that were at work to turn the hearts and minds of people away from the pure message of Jesus into all sorts of pagan and spiritualistic philosophies. And and to be clear, Scripture is clear that these are real. Uh, There is not just the physical world that we're in, but there is a spiritual world, and there are spiritual battles raging, not just in this ancient city, but even among us today. And so part of this religious philosophy that that was sort of infecting their minds was this submission to these elemental spiritual forces of the world. 
It appears that they were being um, pulled into some sort of a combination of Jewish religious practices and pagan or cultic practices. And so, you know, Christianity, the message of Jesus, is born out of the Jewish heritage. Jesus himself was a Jew. And so they were sort of being sold this package of things like practicing the Sabbath, which was part of the Jewish religious practices, with other cultic practices in in something called syncretism. It's sort of the synchronizing or melding of different spiritualistic practices. That's part of this philosophy that was being Um, sort of imposed on them. It involved worshiping angels uh, as sort of the the mediators of relationship between God and man. There seems to have been a sense that they should pursue some sort of a training for spiritual eliteness, uh, that there were visions and sayings that were sort of given to those who had achieved a spiritually elite status, and these new believers should be pursuing this elite status. And all of this, Paul says, has an appearance of wisdom. Seems wise, rigorous practices, high-minded spiritual um, aspirations, identifying spiritual forces. All of this has an appearance of wisdom, Paul says, and yet it's not the pure message of Jesus. It's not what we're being invited to when we know and follow Jesus in a relationship with God. And can you feel the religious stress of all of that? Can you feel the the stress of trying to manage all of these expectations that accompany being a person of faith? And I wonder if you can identify with that to some degree. George Whitfield uh, was one of the great preachers in Christian history. He lived in the 18th century, um, preached in England, preached in America, uh, one of the, the most influential figures not only of his day, but, but in all of Christian history. And his story of faith uh, begins in college. He was at Oxford in England, and he had come into um, sort of religious practices, and he kind of formed a relationship with John and Charles Wesley in what was called the, the Holy Club, or the Methodist movement. And they had all sorts of religious um, spiritual practices that they followed rigorously in order to know God. Now, they believed in Jesus, um, just like these Colossian believers did. Um, but, but Whitfield found himself caught up in, in a schedule, a, a lifestyle of religious practice, in a, in a relentless pursuit of knowing God that ultimately left him empty. So it, it was rising early in the morning for long devotions. It was lengthy study of theological and classical works throughout the centuries. Um, They had a schedule where they would not waste any minutes of the day. All throughout the door, every day, every moment would be accounted for. Uh, They practiced communion every Sunday. They fasted every Wednesday and Friday. They did prison visits throughout the week, all in an effort to know God and to grasp what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. In Whitfield's story, uh, in his own autobiography, he talks about reading a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man that planted a seed in him that it wasn't all about this religious practice, that the life of God had to be planted in his soul in order for him to truly know God, to truly embrace Christ. And it rang true for him. That knowing God through Jesus wasn't just about the religious practices, but it was a transformation of the soul. 
But interestingly, the knowledge of that and sort of the recognition of what true knowledge of God was stressed him out even further. And, and he went into an even deeper practice uh, where he would sort of carry this fear and weight and sort of heaviness about him because he longed for this experience that he had not yet attained. And so he would spend days, even weeks, just sort of lying prostrate on the floor in prayer. He would deny himself food, speech, sleep. He would write out all of his sins that he could call to mind, past and present, and he would confess them morning and evening. And yet, in his story, he says there was no life of God in his soul. No manner of religious activity could fill that hole of the life of God in his soul. It's, a, it's an extreme picture of religious stress that was this endless cycle. And Paul, in the book of Colossians, is going after this, this idea that somehow we can attain to a relationship with God and a knowledge of Jesus through practices outside of a simple faith in what Jesus is and who he is and what he has done. And so the core message that Paul delivers uh, is found in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to spend the next few minutes, I want to say five things from Colossians 1, 15 through 20 that sort of sum up the, the way that Paul went after this idea of, of a religious stress and invite people into a relationship with Jesus that is one of peace and rest. And that invitation extends to each one of us today as well. So we'll just take this a piece at a time, beginning in Colossians 1 verse 15 says the son is the image of the invisible God that is Jesus the firstborn over all creation I want to say two things just from from this verse Um, Paul is stating in grand fashion who Jesus is and this is the beginning of a corrective of our understanding of what it means to know him rather than a religious philosophy Jesus is the revelation of God himself. That's the first thing. Rather than a religious philosophy with all manner of component parts, primarily Jesus is the revelation of God himself. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. And Jesus, in his person, in who he is, represents all that the Father is. Secondly, in this verse, Jesus is called the firstborn over all creation. And there's at least two dimensions to the idea of Jesus being identified as firstborn. And it's quite a bit different than the way that we tend to think of what it means to be a firstborn child in our culture. The first dimension of of Jesus being firstborn is that he had a supremacy or priority of rank over all of creation and particularly the spiritual forces that were imposing on the minds of these early believers to draw them away from the pure message of Jesus. Look there in verse 16. Jesus is called firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created. 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And you can see in that verse how all these different elements are being named. Everything in heaven and on earth, thrones, powers, rulers, principalities, um, we have to believe that, that Paul had in mind, in particular, even these sort of evil forces that were pulling people away. Even the evil was within the power and supremacy and rank of Jesus so that nothing outranks him. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, and it speaks to his supremacy. There's this rhythm of all things were created in him and through him and for him. And, and these categories um, have significance for us. To, for everything to have been created in Christ means there is nothing outside of his sphere. There's nothing outside of his power. There's nothing outside of his supremacy that exists anywhere in heaven or earth, anywhere in the spiritual or physical world. All is subject to him. Paul is telling these believers that all things have been created through Jesus that he's the actual agent of creation. He's the one who has done the creating of all that there is, both in the heavenly and in the earthly realm. And not only was everything created in him and through him, but it was also created for him. So Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has a purpose in the creation of all things, and it's his purpose that's the goal of everything. And so you get this this grand view of whatever is, is sort of in your head or in your heart or whatever voices um, someone may be hearing, whether it's an early believer in a biblical context, whether it's somebody in George Whitfield's day, or whether it's us here in our modern day, whatever voices we're hearing that are adding a religious stress to our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Jesus is supreme over all of it. So there's nothing that can be added to the gift of who he is. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. A second dimension to this idea of being firstborn over all creation is not only that Jesus ranks above all things because he is the creator, but he existed before all things. He was pre-existent. He came first. No one was there before him. Now this picks up on a Jewish theology that emerges in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament that's a beautiful connection between wisdom and the wisdom of God in creation and who Jesus is. Uh, and scholars will point out that the work of Jesus that's talked about in the New Testament uh, is, is dovetailing with the language describing wisdom in the Old Testament. So I'm going to read a passage from Proverbs uh, chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. And I just want you to sort of let this wash over you. Hear these descriptions of wisdom being alongside the Father in creation. And, and envision Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, in this role, preexistent, coming first, and creating all that there is. Proverbs 8, beginning in verse 22, says this. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning, when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. 
before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Far from a bossy older sibling, Jesus as firstborn is one with true authority, complete knowledge, and deep love for all of creation that is, in fact, his handiwork. Jesus Christ is called the firstborn over all creation. And before we move on from that, I just want to add one little little, little caveat, little theological caveat, lest we sort of misunderstand some of the nuance of Jesus as firstborn. Uh, It is clear, the witness of Scripture, that Jesus, uh, as the eternal Son, is eternally coexistent with the Father and the Spirit. There is no point that Jesus was created, so there is no point where the Son wasn't in existence. And yet this idea, this rank of being firstborn is described in Scripture uh, in the way that we have just read as alongside the Father, preexistent and supreme over all creation. Jesus is firstborn over all creation. Third thing that emerges uh, in this section is that Jesus is called the firstborn from among the dead. Look in verse 17. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. On into verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So not only is Jesus the highest authority and the, the unifying principle of all of creation, he is the same for the church. And in the New Testament, we have this language of a new creation. Jesus is the founder of a new people. When he went on to die on a cross to represent, uh, in the, to stand in the place of sinners, to make reconciliation with God, and then rose again in the resurrection, Jesus founded a new people. It was a new creation. And in the same way that he is the supreme authority, that he is the, the unifier of all in creation, he is the same for the church. And the language here is he is the firstborn from among the dead. The dead are us. The dead are those who, because of sin, were alienated from God. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he made a way for his siblings, the book of Hebrews talks about. He's the, the older sibling so that we might find our way to God through him. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And this moves us in the direction of personal redemption, personal peace and salvation that shows up in the following verses. Fourth thing I want to say uh, from this section is that the fullness of life with God is all in Jesus Christ. Look in verse 19. It says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. 
I said a moment ago from Colossians chapter 2 that there was this idea among the uh, religious philosophy of that day that there was sort of a greater fullness to be achieved by these religious practices, sort of a higher spiritual plane. And Paul goes after this by saying all the fullness of God, everything that he is, the exact representation of his nature is wrapped up in Jesus. So when we receive the gift of Jesus, there is no higher spiritual plane. Everything that is a part of the fullness of God is given to us in him. So Jesus is the image of God, the exact representation of his nature. That's first. Jesus is called the firstborn over all creation. That's second. Jesus is called the firstborn from among the dead. That's third. All the fullness of God is wrapped up in Jesus That's the fourth. And then the fifth and final thing I want to say and lead us into an invitation this Christmas is that peace with God was accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross. Look in verse 20. It says, Through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the lens that I've invited us to see this through is is through this idea of a religious stress. And and I think it's helpful, appropriate, invitational for us to see that Paul concludes this hymn of praise to Jesus with peace. The work of Jesus on earth in his birth, life, death, resurrection is so that people might have peace with God. They might be reconciled to him in a peaceful relationship and have a relationship that is characterized by peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. So how can we exchange religious stress for peace? How can we exchange some of these philosophies that have come into our uh, hearts and minds, whether from within the church or outside the church or just from our own striving to attain something that we don't feel like we have yet grasped? How can we exchange that religious stress for a peace in relationship with Jesus? And I would suggest that it's through putting our faith in who Jesus is And what he has done as the firstborn over all creation, as the firstborn from among the dead, Paul is stating in no no uncertain terms that it's not about our striving, it's about his authority and his accomplishment. So George Whitfield goes on to tell the story that after um, probably seven or eight months of, of this sort of amped up religious stress going after this life of God in his own soul. Uh, He became very ill, um, had had deprived himself so so harshly that he was too weak even to walk up the stairs of his own house. And he tells the story of coming to a point where he just gave up. All of his strivings, all of his inner turmoil— seeking to grasp this this inner life that eluded him. He had no strength left to continue fighting. 
And he finally gave up and he just said, Lord, have mercy on me. And in his words, a ray of faith appeared. And that ray of faith grew into an understanding that no matter what he did, he wasn't going to attain that life of God in his soul, that all along it was about what Christ had done for him, and he began to truly believe it. He had all kinds of faith here. And in that moment when he gave up his striving, that faith landed here, and that ray of faith changed everything and he went on to declare that simple faith in Jesus uh, in a way that he is still remembered today. I believe as we come into Christmas, as we consider the gift of Jesus Christ, the firstborn, um, it's an invitation to believe and rest, not to believe and stress. I know that's a little bit cheesy, but, but I want to take that with us. It's an invitation to believe and rest in the gift of Jesus, not to believe and stress about the gift of Jesus. And I think this is a great time of year, particularly with this, this interesting juxtaposition of Christmas stress and Christmas joy, to sort of hold these two things together and, and sort of give them to God. And consider what this might mean for you and me in our spiritual journey, in our relationship with God. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey today, but wherever you are, let me, let me just encourage you to consider taking a step of, of using this season to sort of step back and reflect and think about what it might mean for you to take a step of belief and rest in who Jesus is. You may be exploring a step of faith. And I would encourage you to just ask your questions, explore your questions about God and Christianity with an open mind to where faith in Jesus might take you. We've talked about this Explore God series coming up in January. Seek out a a group of folks who are in that same place as you and wrestle with those questions with an open mind. You may be in a place where it's time for a step of growth, of gaining knowledge about God and the Bible and ways to grow as a follower of Jesus. And let me encourage you to resolve in the new year to take those steps. You may be in a place where you're ready for a step of relationship, that that you know a lot, you're doing a lot, but you're longing for that life of God in your soul. And let me, continue, let me just encourage you to consider what that pursuit might look like for you as we move through this season and into the new year. Jesus Christ is a gift that continues to surprise and amaze us as we get to know him. He will not wear out. He will only get better with time. And so the invitation to all of us this Christmas as we celebrate uh, with our friends, our family, and whatever the, the days hold for you this week, let's lean into that gift Jesus Christ, the firstborn, and so much more, and rest in him. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. In this season where we're so focused on gifts, um, help us to see and receive your son as a gift that can transform 
everything in our lives. And I confess, it, it, there, it's hard sometimes to know what that means. It's hard to live in that simplicity. Uh, and so I just pray against uh, any voices that would pull us away and cloud what it means to trust in Jesus as the one with true authority, as the one who holds everything together, and to rest in what he has done and who he is. Help us to receive that gift this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.